This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on Refugee Women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says Survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we continue our series about refugee women, inviting stories about what it's really like to leave your home and come here as a refugee. My guest today is Taysir El-Sheikh from North Sudan. In 2010, she fled her country after she was prosecuted as a spy for volunteering as an interpreter for international humanitarian organizations working in Darfur. She lived in Egypt for five years with her three children before coming to the U.S. in 2015. She now works for Catholic Charities as a cultural skills aide and an elder services aide, and also as their Arabic interpreter. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Taysir. Thank you so much, Anne, for choosing me to do this interview. So I want to get to know you a little bit before you arrived here. I understand that you were working in North Sudan as a volunteer interpreter. That isn't actually your main job beforehand. Tell me a little bit about your life in North Sudan before all of this started happening. Oh, well, I used to be a veterinarian uh, who worked with uh, medical companies as uh, a pharmaceutical sales representative first, and then I became operation manager for a medical company dealing with pharmaceuticals. Uh, but uh, one of my interests is the humanitarian field, so I used to volunteer in non-governmental organizations who usually work in war-torn regions in Sudan, for example, Darfur. Um, I uh, participated in educating uh, the health workers in the internally displaced people camps in the area of Darfur. Uh, my presence in Darfur uh, was a reason behind being uh, called as an ad hoc interpreter to help the international organizations in uh, distributing uh, different kinds of assistance like food, clothing, and uh, many stuff like that. So I followed what was going on in Darfur, you know, from such a distance. My understanding of that time and that conflict was that it was really uh, a brutal time of oppression and, and really killing of the is it the non-Arabic populations in that region of Western Sudan. Is that right? Yes. They, they do speak Arabic, but they have their own uh, local languages. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it was a conflict around ethnicity, a difference in ethnicity. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And were you aware when you started volunteering, were you aware that it might put you at risk? I didn't think about it at all because it was a humanitarian work. And was there a time before you were actually 
detained when you began to think, oh, this, this is becoming dangerous for me personally? Yes. Actually, um, after being detained, uh, it started with interrogations. They started yeah, to call me in the security office to interrogate me and ask me about the activities of the international organizations. Uh, what do they do? And I insisted that I'm, I'm just doing this um, from a humanitarian point of view because that was a fact. And those organizations are just helping people. They do not have any kind of political activities or anything like that. They consider me an influential person because, you know what, uh, being working with different organizations and um, joining multinational companies and stuff like that. And that was, uh, I, I think, 2009, al-Bashir was called by the international court who has crimes yeah. against humanity. Yes. yes, yes, exactly. They consider these non-governmental organizations who work in Darfur uh, doing some spying activities and uh, letting the information uh, cross the borders. I see. Mm-hmm. So the perspective from the government was that these non-governmental organizations were actually spying on yes. them mm-hmm. and that the reason why al-Bashir was was convicted of these crimes against yes. humanity it was because of this supposed spying. Yes, exactly. I see. So you would be seen as someone who was directly a threat to him. Yeah. So when you use the word interrogation, you know, that word is, in my mind, is very associated with torture. Were you in person or were you on the phone? Tell me a little bit how, how those questionings actually went. I was inter- interrogated while being tortured. Oh, you were? Yeah. In, in in an attempt to make to force me to tell them what they want to know. I'm so sorry okay. to hear that. Exactly. So you had a very profound experience of how dangerous of this course was. I yeah. had. And on top of this, you had three children. Yeah. Were you were you I afraid? Ha- actually, for I have five. Oh. I left two behind because they were. At that time, uh, my elder son was 19, and my younger one is, was 18, and they did need a visa to travel from Sudan. And it was all about time. I just needed to leave my country. I left everything behind, everything, even my clothes. I just took my younger kids and fled Sudan to Egypt. Because this is the only country that allow Sudanese ladies to enter without visa. I see. So, and yes. your children, because they were the three that were under 18, didn't need a visa. Yeah, they didn't need a visa. I see. So you have this experience of interrogation and torture. Mm-hmm. And did you just kind of get home from that moment and leave right away? Or how, how did the process go of you deciding, like, I I've have to go? I've been detained for uh, seven days. And that was a horrible and terrible ex- experience. And I am athletic. I have many health concerns. So um, when they saw me and my, my health is deteriorating, they didn't want to take the responsibility. So they left me and I, I went back home after I signed the release paper that I will not leave the city. 
without them uh, giving me the permission. I see. So they, they're afraid that you're going to start to get really sick. So they release you, but yes. they make you sign that. Yeah, exactly. And then what happened next? I went home. I went back home, and they made me uh, come into their office every uh, Monday and Thursday just to show up and to humiliate me. Come and stay here. Don't leave. And they started to to ask the same questions different ways in order to get their, the answer they want. Then I asked my relative who has been working in the airport to help me, and he helped me. I fled Sudan. He just, I, I got a phone call the 22nd of July, 2010. He told me that uh, Taysir, come along. Come to the airport right now, you and your kids. I just left my house and went to the airport and fled Sudan. I didn't take anything. My huge house, my servants, my everything, even the food in the fridge, uh, my clothes and the closets and everything. I took my younger kids and went. What did you tell your children? We have to go. We have to leave Sudan to a better, safe place. They, they notice that I'm very, I'm depressed, totally depressed for, for what I have seen and while detained. So they joined me. And your husband and your two children that you left behind, did you get a chance to say goodbye? Uh, no, they couldn't because they need, they did need a visa to travel with me, but they suffered a lot after I left. In what way? Yeah. They have been interrogated so many times and they have been asked to give, to provide, uh, them with my phone number. And I started to get many phone calls a day, every single day we will reach you. We'll never let you, and you can't come here again. And even where you you are staying right now, we will reach you. So that's terrifying. Yeah, very, very terrifying. And then to hear that they were hurting your children. Yeah, I can't tell you. It was a terrible, terrible experience. I imagine that haunts you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you arrive in Egypt with three children and nothing. What did you do? Um, I was familiar with Egypt. Many people know, know me very well. So they helped me get my own apartment. And uh, I started my life there. Many kind of sufferings. First of all, my kids can't join the public schools. So I have to offer to let them go to the private schools which are very very expensive so every single penny I brought with me from Sudan I spent that money in my kids education how did you decide that you wanted to come to the United States I'm not the one who chose this refugees has no right to choose you apply for the UN 
and you interviewed by the UN uh, officers and then they decide on considering you a refugee or not. So when you get invited to your interview, mm -hmm. what did they ask you? They asked me about every single detail about my journey as a refugee. Starting from my jobs in Sudan, what did I do in Sudan first, and what kind of work? Uh, even uh, do I have political any political point of view or stuff like that? And they didn't even give me any kind of, uh, you know, they are. You can't read anything from their faces. They just we are going to ask you, and then. Um, in the future, we will answer you back after careful studying and careful uh, revision of of your your case. So you just have to wait. So telling a story that's traumatic, a story of loss, a story of torture, a story of terror, it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult, and you need to do it through this procedure many times and every single time you leave the same feelings the same feelings sometimes i need i needed to take antidepressants because i found myself c can't sleep and uh, i i can't tell you how uh, terrible was that when these flashbacks come in front of you again while trying to to forget about everything and to start new life and to and to look forward they made me look backward many times in order to grant my my refugee status you know for me as a psychiatrist you know part of what's so important is when someone talks about trauma is, is that they be received in a very respectful warm yeah listener yeah and so i can imagine that it is additionally difficult not only to have to look back into these traumatic memories but to but to be met with this sort of stonewalled face yeah. as if there was no humanity or compassion yeah it's very and difficult yeah but they i think they were trying to not to give uh, us hope while there is uh, a probability that we are not going to be chosen Right now, yeah. I mean, I understand why, but mm -hmm. nonetheless, yeah, for you as time, a human being. <laughs> yeah, at that time, it was very painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, okay, yes. so you go through this interview, you get told there's sort of this indefinite waiting period. Yeah. You don't know how long, and it's not even clear you're going to get approved. Mm -hmm. How do you cope with that kind of anxiety? Like, what did you do to manage that? I, I was um, concerned about my kids, mainly. Yeah. I used to talk to them, and I used to um, uh, tell them that we are we are good. Since your health is good and we are together and everything will be all right, I, I, I was trying to, to give them hope till they know the lesson to the extent that they started to teach me the lesson. When they find me crying, they said, uh, Mommy, when life give, gives you uh, reasons to cry, Give it back reason that you are very happy. You have lovely kids and they love you and they do respect you. And we are together. They started to teach me. 
Although in the first period, I, I was the one who teach them, and I was trying to, to draw this kind of smile always and singing and stuff like that in order to, to minimize the effect of being indefinite. Nothing is definite. Right. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, how did you hear the news that you had been accepted? Yeah, tears, I can't tell you. We were very excited. We started to cry. And um, then I felt like there is hope of getting out of here and start new life. And um, we started to prepare ourselves. We don't have any problem with the language, uh, me and my kids, but they started to read about America, about life in, in America. Were there things that you were particularly nervous about in coming here? No, I was not nervous about it. And um, I'm very happy that I chose, I have been chosen to come to America and to men particularly. I love men. What do you love about me? People are very kind, very welcoming, and the Catholic charities here help me a lot. And I think the, their major help to me is, uh, is, is giving me the chance to work with them. Because, you know, one of the problems that refugees face when they come here, their experience, their overseas experience, will not be considered at all. At all, you have to start from zero, right? So you're for you, you're no, you're trained as a veterinarian. That doesn't count because no, you didn't get it educated. No, either. up till now, I am uh, I'm doing the procedure of of getting my license as veterinarian, but it might take four years at least. Right. So so it's very long procedure. So when you find someone who consider your overseas experience and give you the chance to practice or to work, I think this is a major help you can find, other mm-hmm. than any kind of help. So I, I thank them so much. Mm. So do you arrive in March in Maine? Uh, mm-hmm. March of 2015 was a particularly long winter, so it was still very yes. snowy. Yeah. What are the first few days like? You arrive at the airport, the Portland mm-hmm. Jetport, and where do you go first? Uh, I have a relative of mine here. Yeah, he took me to his home. Huh. And we started the procedure with the Catholic Charities. They applied for us for the uh, Social Security. And um, we have been to the DHHS uh, to, uh, to apply for our uh, cash assistance and food stamp and stuff like that. Meanwhile, I applied for the driver license. I had my test, I passed from the first trial, and I had my license. Because, you know, uh, being a single mom put uh, responsibility on my shoulders. I have to be like father and mother, and I have to take my kids to school. Because we were in Goram when we arrived, so I enrolled my kids in Goram schools, and I didn't find any uh, apartment in Goram. I had to live here in Westbrook and take my kids every day to Gorham to school. So you initially were staying with your relative in Gorham and then yeah. couldn't actually stay there, but by now your kids are already in school there. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, uh, so you become, you are the school bus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so thank goodness you passed your driver's <laughs> license. So, okay, so what I get the sense is that when you first got here, a lot of it is paperwork. I mean, it's a lot of applying yeah. for this, signing up for this, registering for this. And my understanding is that Catholic Charities is sort of like the designated agency yes. that helps with all refuge official refugees once they arrive. They are. Usually Catholic Charities help refugees from airport reception. And they help them in uh, assurance of basic needs, food, clothing, housing, and health uh, referrals. How did it come to pass that you ended up getting hired by Catholic Charities? I was interpreting for one of their members. She is an employee working with them, uh, with Iraqi family. I asked her about job openings. She said, there is an opening. You can apply for cultural orientation aid and elder services aid. I applied. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. What is a cultural skills orientation aid? What do you do? We teach people about health care system and police system here in Maine and U.S. laws, uh, also child care and when to apply to the green card and um, the public transportation. Uh-huh. And Catholic charities usually provide uh, tickets, free tickets for the people when ar- they arrive here for three months. Um, so there's so many things that I think living here I could take for granted mm-hmm. and not even be aware that someone coming from another country wouldn't necessarily know. I mean, you're laying out these things that I think mm-hmm. they make so much sense. And it's interesting. Also, by, uh, they, we gave them an idea about 911 and 211, when to call uh, and how. Uh, also, we give them an idea about uh, thrift stores and food pantries here in Man. Yeah. Really essential resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I'm aware sitting here in your home and mm-hmm. seeing your beautiful pinkish red scarf. And I'm <laughs> aware that right now in this country mm-hmm. is a time when there's a lot of fear mm-hmm. about Muslim immigrants. Mm-hmm. How is it for you, I guess first asking you personally, how is it for you to be hearing these things in the news and does it affect your feeling of safety here in this country? Uh, Well, for a while, yeah, it does. It does affect my safety because um, I'm quite sure if I sit with anyone to tell him who, who, who am I, and how do I think he will be convinced that Islam is, has nothing to do with terrorism and stuff like that? Our religious has nothing to do with that. But the problem is people are not aware, very well aware of this. Um, at the beginning, my kids were very scared and they said, Mommy, take your scarf off. You are now uh, at risk. But I think um, people like you and your uh, radio station, people like Catholic Charities while uh, doing some uh, trainings, what they call in their shoes training, um, they might help in creating kind of awareness among 
the population because it's all about media. Our reference is the, the media. So uh, I think awareness will be created. You're optimistic. Yeah, of course, yeah. But I can imagine for you in that moment, your children are coming to you and saying, Mom, we're afraid for you. Yeah. What were the thoughts in your mind as you made that decision? It's, it's my beliefs and my disciplines, I can't, which shouldn't be affected by any kind of, of events like this. It's all about beliefs and disciplines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you had any experiences here in Maine of someone reacting to you because of the way that you're dressed? Yes. Uh, it happened when we arrived here. We were looking for an apartment, and that was in Gorom. We went in the wrong direction, and we were pulling over near his house, that man, and he saw us wearing like this. He put his hand in his pocket and trying to pull out uh, something. I didn't see, but get away! He, he cried, and we ran. I bet you did. Yeah, we ran, and my kids were very scared. And that day also, they asked me to remove my scarf. I said, no, this is one person, so <laughs> there will be no problem. I think for some Americans, um, they don't necessarily, and I think me among them, mm-hmm. don't really know the importance of the scarf. Like, what does it mean to you when you say this is my beliefs yeah. and my discipline? What What is the deep personal okay. meaning to you? Yeah, our Prophet Muhammad uh, and our uh, Islam ask us as a ladies, uh, adult ladies, to cover our hair and to cover our body. Um, this is something uh, in our religion. So we have to do it. But I, I would never force anyone. You even you can see my my daughters, although they are adults, but they they do not wear. Uh, it's uh, it's all about your beliefs. And some Muslim people s- see me as as if I'm not wearing hijab at all because I wear trousers. So you have a sort of a modern interpretation yeah. of hijab, yeah. maybe. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So you mentioned that your daughter does not wear the scarf, and yeah. she is in high school here in mm-hmm. Gorham, Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that for different generations, coming here is a very different thing, being surrounded as a teenager with all kinds of other teenagers. Were there particular concerns you had about your children becoming westernized or by American influences? Well, uh, we as a family talk a lot about these these issues. I think uh, we are bounded by by kind of disciplines. I I know their beliefs and their disciplines and and the way they they think even. And even uh, can you give me an example? Uh, for example, uh, Iman has been asked in her school that Iman, you are saying you are Muslim. Why don't you wear uh, hijab? Uh, she said, uh, Islam is all about practicing it, not appearing as Muslim. Many Muslims consider themselves Muslims while not doing the right things. I do the right things. I am a believer that I'm, I'm trying myself to do the right things. 
So this is the real Islam. It's not about wearing hijab. It's about practicing Islam. Islam uh, asks us to love people and not to judge them and to think positively about people. And all of these stuffs are not practiced well. So I have to practice Islam first and then to wear hijab or not. It's all about what we believe. Yeah. I can imagine that any American mother would be so proud to hear a daughter say that. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and I include any Christian or Jewish mother, too, to, to hear yeah. that embrace and deep understanding of the heart of a religion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so it's much, beautiful. Annie. So, Tizir, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's been you such a welcome. pleasure to have you. Thank you for choosing me, and thank you very much for coming to my house. If someone wants to support Catholic Charities, how can they find them on the web? Uh, www.ccman.org. Ccman, M-A-I-N-E, yes, .org. Yes, .org, yeah. Wonderful. It sounds like they're doing such beautiful work, and yes, partly through you. they do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. A quick reminder before we end the show, I'd like to invite you to give us your feedback about this interview and about the series on refugee women. Please go to our website, safespaceradio.com, and click on the survey button to give us your feedback. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including our earlier series on Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.